0: Conversations from the Pale Blue Dot. Today I interview Bible scholar Yako Gareke.
1: And in my attempt to understand other side, I sort of discovered what was wrong with the side I was on, and that we weren't said as we thought.
0: Remember to visit commonsenseatheism.com for more episodes and articles about God, science, and morality. Dr. Yako Garecki is a research scholar specializing in the Hebrew Bible at Northwest University in South Africa. He has published a couple dozen professional articles, most of them on the philosophy of the Hebrew Bible and ancient Israelite religion. Yako, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you, Luke. It's a pleasure being here.
0: Yako, would you share with us your own faith journey?
1: Like most people in the States, I suppose, I was born into a Christian family, without any specific beliefs at birth, and um, the church that my parents belonged to would be comparable to what you have in the U.S. as Presbyterian, it, it's Dutch Reformed Calvinism, and as a young boy I remember Bible stories in church and so on, and
0: it didn't really have an
1: impact on me at that time. I had a conversion experience which changed my life, and it made religion into a priority, and Everything centered around this and the specific spirituality in which I was immersed was basically conservative evangelical theology and the whole spirituality thing around that tradition. One of the theologians that I read the most was a New Testament scholar or pastor from the United States actually. His name is John MacArthur and I basically read a lot of the literature in the American fundamentalist and conservative evangelical traditions. And my whole spirituality was based during my teens on that tradition. And from early high school, I wanted to become a missionary because my whole life was devoted towards religion and, and, and it was really meaningful to me. Mm-hmm. But I didn't really have any idea about what it was all about out there. I basically thought theology was just started as a Bible and only thought in the context of conservative evangelical beliefs. And But it was never a burden for me. It was a joy. and. I was sure that I had the truth and my whole life was orientated towards sharing that with other people and the love and the communion one experiences in that sort of faith relationship. And while I had to study theology in order to become a missionary because the church which I belong to, the Dutch Reformed Church, they only send out missionaries who have a degree in theology, who have studied theology to the point where you can also go into the ministry. The first four years of theology, which I studied, was a bit difficult for me because at the university they teach you a lot of the different theological subjects going on and everything from biblical studies through systematic theology, ethics, and church history, and practical theology. And we also had to choose an extra subject, and while most people choose psychology or sociology, I chose philosophy. And all these subjects impacted on me and sort of broadened my perspective on what is out there and this shocked me initially, and for the first four years, I retreated into Christian apologetics because everything was just as, as you would call it, so liberal and so mm-hmm. disconcerting, and I, I thought, well, these people couldn't possibly be real Christians, and they have all these prejudices and presuppositions, which is why they don't see it like I do, and um well, for, basically for the first four years, I, I was not troubled in my faith because uh, and I used to argue with the professors because I've read all the, the conservative evangelical apologetics and I also started reading up on philosophy of religion, basically layman's apologetics from Lee Strobel and Josh McDowell through everything to Alvin Plantinga and William Lane Craig and everything you you can get your hands on. And, well, what basically happened was that I was still considering leaving my studies to enroll in more conservative seminary or something. When one day by chance I, I got into reading more literature on fundamentalism and this one book I picked up which I thought was a was actually fundamentalist literature but it was actually a book on fundamentalism from an outside perspective from somebody who himself was in the game and it was James Barr's I think the American version is called Beyond Fundamentalism. Uh, the British one is called Escaping from Fundamentalism and that book, it never convinced me of any truth in liberal theology or anything like that. It just opened my eyes to some of the things that people who are inside fundamentalism take for granted. Now, that book was published in the early 80s, and a few years before, James Barr, he's an Old and a scholar, actually also wrote a larger piece called Fundamentalism, which is a bit more technical. And I got my hands on that, and at first I was just amused because I have an open mind, I decided that I wanted to understand why people become liberal, because I I almost, saw myself, in a sense, as an apologist for the more fundamentalist version of the faith, and I wanted to understand the other side. And in my attempt to understand the other side, I sort of discovered what was wrong with the side I was on, and that we weren't so biblical as we thought. This sort of got me into a crisis where I discovered that much of the fundamentalist views on what liberal scholarship is and biblical criticism is actually a very distorted view, a caricature created in their own image of what they would like it to be, because they can't accept the implications, but whereas the implications of critical scholarship just concerted me before, and I would just dismiss them because I always read about the results of liberal scholarship in conservative apologist literature. I never read the primary literature. When I got into the actual research and discovered why people begin to think like this and what in the Bible itself made them leave a conservative view, Mm -hmm. and I discovered that the Bible itself can make fundamentalism problematic, that there's no biblical view on anything, sort of shattered my whole conception of faith because in, in fundamentalism all your faith is Well, it's supposed to depend on the Bible, so if the Bible becomes not what you think it is, your whole faith is in danger of falling apart. And I started reading up more on philosophy of religion and apologetics even more and even psychology of religion and Everything I could get my hands on, more biblical criticism, Old Testament, New Testament, system, systematic theology and I really, for me, the experience of gaining these insights was anything but liberating it. It was really a reality shock and I always used analogies from films like The Matrix or The Truman Show, but this these are analogies for, it's not like somebody died in your reality, it's more like our entire reality melting and nothing. Nothing is what it was anymore. It's like your worst nightmare, but you realize you're not dreaming, even though it seems unreal for so long. But what happened then basically in a nutshell is that because the idea of atheism is impossible at that point, one gradually drifts from conservative to moderate to an intermediate to a liberal, through radical and through all the phases you go through in Christianity just to find a new identity but you remain Christian and then what happens is because you are so scared of being disillusioned again you actually look for criticism against any new view you, you are looking to adopt just so you won't be disillusioned in the future and believe me if you look long enough you'll find critique on any view and everything you thought you was and you believed had a history and had a all too human history in the history of ideas and whereas you always thought just other people were children of the time and immersed, immersed in myth and superstition. To see yourself in that position is really something that totally disturbs your sense of self and reality. As you said, it's just a matter of where you come to a point where you realize that the same reason you never that believe in other gods now become the same reasons why you cannot no longer believe in your own God. And you realize that what you called God was also just a local God with a history. And the problem is that the literature out there does not tell people what to do then. The, the only literature are either apologetic books that tries to tell you why the beliefs are true, or atheist books that tell you why they are false. But there is very little out there that takes somebody from losing faith through this crisis and tells them how to cope with a loss of faith, not arguing that atheism is true or that beliefs are false, but just, just how you cope with this. And people like Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens, and those people don't realize that even if they have good arguments, it's of little use because once you have been immersed so deeply into faith, you actually don't know how to live any other way. So the reason why many people never believe their faith and accept an atheist point of view is not because they have good arguments or... They can't see some point, but it's just because they simply don't know how to live without faith. And they don't know how to cope with this crisis because, in a sense, faith tells you that you can't live without God. And that's how the definition of how is basically God basically God-forsakenness and that life is meaningless. So once you leave the faith, you actually experience life is totally meaningless and the world, all the magic is gone. And the thing is, you, you never realize that your own religion worked like in commercial. It actually created a need in you, a cultural need meaning and beliefs and certainty and it also fulfilled that need and so when you ditch your dogmas your beliefs you forget that you also have all these assumptions that that made those beliefs meaningful and necessary and it doesn't help just to ditch the contents of your beliefs if you also do not get to work on the assumptions that make you want to believe in something because otherwise when you lose faith you're you're always going to look for something else to believe in. And if you can't live, if you don't have anything to believe in. And what people don't realize is that, in a sense, this is a very Western and modernist kind of hang-up, that everybody, people always assume that you need to find yourself, that you need to have an identity, that you need to believe in something, and that you need to, to be somebody with certainties, otherwise you can't live. And even in a sense, atheism also just assumes that, but... Um, I, I think in in more postmodern and other Eastern and other elsewhere, you realize that this is also just part of cultural conditioning, and that in a sense you will always be nostalgically faith and you will always want something to believe in because you you have you may have ditched the contents of your beliefs, but you are still walking around with the software that assumes that this is the only possible program that you can run to live. So, in the end, what, what got me through my faith journey, or the crisis where what, while I was nostalgic for my faith and it was pure hell, um, what liberated me was actually not so much um, militant atheism or the new atheism, but more a post-modern type of philosophy of religion along the lines of the works of people like Don Cupid from UK, where he got me questioning into my fundamental assumptions about why think it's necessary to discover meaning in life or discover what you have to believe in? Why not be like an artist rather than a scientist and create your own meaning and your own belief system? Because if if you don't create it yourself anyway, it's not going to mean anything to you personally. And in fact, most of the world we experience is actually simply a world made up of stories. Actually, this is the reason for the internet and for every old times and atheism and Christianity is that people are addicted to telling stories about what is going on and the meaning and truth. The one you experience will always be in the stories you buy into that is going on in the culture you live in at the moment. And I think in philosophy since Nietzsche and through postmodern times we have learned we've come to accept that one's concept of self and your whole belief system is made up of the stories you that are running around in your head at any given moment and the crisis of meaning and faith comes in when the stories are, no longer make sense. But somehow one has to get a story to project onto the world. One doesn't need all these things that one assumes. So my journey from faith is basically now I'm at a point where you, you can call me an atheist, but I don't really like the label because it sort of puts you into a stereotype of people who actually believe or certain things or deny certain things. Well, I, I don't want identity. I don't want certainty. I, I think it's, it's great if you can can Constantly change your opinion and your view of who you are, and the meaning of your life doesn't have to be the same as everybody else's, and you can change it as you go along. And what what has meaning for you early in life doesn't have to stay the same later on. So at the moment I'm just free floating, but because there's no ground I'm going to hit even if you're falling, um, it's just like infinite space. And where this used to be a very anxiety ridden experience for me, I'm yeah after. I suppose, 10 years after the initial crisis, I'm now at a point where I, I don't need to define myself and be somebody and belong to some group. Yeah, you, know, you can call me a free spirit, but I'm okay, I'm okay not to believe anything. I can I can enjoy myths and legends and stories of humanity and see something in there about the human condition, but I don't need to attach myself to anything.
0: Well, Jaco, I've never heard your story before, but hearing it now, I'm just amazed at how similar it is to my own story. I too was uh, what evangelicals would call on fire for Jesus and just wanted to do nothing else with my life but be like Jesus. And then I started studying biblical studies and philosophy and that was a real shock to my system. And so I read a lot of the same evangelical Christian apologists that you read, like Lee Strobel and William Lane Craig. Uh, And my deconversion wasn't quite as scholarly as yours was. I don't think I could read Plantinga at the time and I certainly wasn't an expert in Hebrew languages or anything, but I, too, experienced it as a real sad time in my life where I just lost the source of all my meaning, the the source of all my dreams and plans about what I wanted to do with my life, and it took a while to figure out that what religion had told me, that without God there couldn't be any meaning or morality in the universe, that that was false and that I actually could have plenty of meaning and morality without God. And so I'm just amazed at at how similar our stories are there. Uh, But I do want to talk to you about your field of expertise. Much of your work has to do with the relationship between philosophy of religion and biblical criticism, two fields that seem like a natural fit since, after all, most philosophers of religion adhere to some form of biblical Christianity or Judaism. And so when they argue about God, they probably care the most about arguing about the biblical God. And yet these two fields have conducted their research with very little overlap in the past. The God of the philosophers is so different from the God of the Bible. So why do you want to integrate these two fields of study, and how is it that you've proposed doing so?
1: I suppose, because I studied philosophy at university as well, along with my theology, I was always interested in these kind of questions. And I specifically remember an incident in the Old Testament class where it was a, a lecture on prophecy. And I asked the lecturer, well, if in the Old Testament it says and Yahweh said this, or the word of God came to the prophet, or whatever, or what does it mean? I mean, did he hear a voice? How did he experience this or just because we've written the literature about different interpretations and there's not a lot of this on this. And the question was immediately dismissed. So I had all these questions about the Old Testament and I realized that when I looked at the literature, these questions were not being answered. All all the most interesting questions, well, are possibly philosophical questions, and they're not being answered in biblical studies. Biblical scholarship has utilized just about any possible auxiliary discipline, whether it's history, or linguistics, or archaeology, or anthropology, or sociology, or psychology. And they are looking into philosophy more nowadays, especially in terms of postmodern social philosophy and philosophy of literature. But the one philosophical subject exclusively concerned with religion, the philosophy of religion, was not involved in the study of ancient Israelite religion. I mean, you have Christian philosophy of religion and Jewish philosophy, but nobody is interested in studying ancient Israelite religion from a philosophical perspective for its own sake. You have some of this in in some branches of philosophy of religion and Jewish philosophy where you have historical introduction. But most philosophers, when they look to the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible, what they are doing is they, they are looking for motives and concepts um, to see how it can contribute to contemporary discussion. But nobody asks it the other way around, asking what, what tools are there in philosophy of religion that can help us understand the Old Testament better or the Hebrew Bible better. It might sound strange because the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament is not philosophy and some would call it pre-philosophical. But there's a fallacy in reasoning here because the object of philosophical analysis does not it itself have to be philosophical before it can be clarified by a philosophical account. And even non-philosophical literature all language contain philosophical presuppositions. So even if you have a culture that is not philosophical in the Western sense at all, there's just a folk philosophy beneath the surface. All cultures have metaphysical, epistemological, and logical and moral assumptions, meaning that even a culture that is not philosophical like ancient Israel, they still had assumptions about what exists, what reality is, what knowledge is, how do you know something, what is justified belief, what is truth, um, what is right and wrong, how do you know the difference, where do you come on, on this knowledge and... What accounts as valid reasoning? So, what amazed me was there's this gap in biblical studies where you have sociology of Islamic religion and the history of Islamic religion and psychology of Islamic religion and anthropology, but there's no philosophy of Islamic religion. And you can understand that to some extent when you look to philosophy of religion and you see what they're doing. You see, mostly it's natural theology, it's about proof, it's about normative. Um, claims and about being relevant for today. So there's very little historical and descriptive in contemporary philosophy of religion. However, there's also this other problem which is in biblical studies there's a history of anti-philosophical sentiment which goes back a very long way. Even before the enlightenment, you have this antagonism between certain Christian and Jewish spirituality and philosophy and the Bible and well, many biblical interpreters before the Enlightenment and the turn to history, and historical criticism were actually also philosophical in their mindset, and from Philo through, well, any, any anybody else. That you, you, you find that there is this in people like Tertullian, the church father, who made a distinction between Jerusalem and Athens, asking what they had in common. You also have what you refer to as the God of the Philosophers versus the God of the Bible, which is an allusion to Pascal's opposition between the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and the God of philosophy, which is, in a sense, a bit essentialist because I suppose with the historical perspective, you realize that there is no such thing as the God of the Bible or the God of Philosophers because there are many conceptions of deity in both in the Hebrew Bible itself and also in philosophy. So there's not just one concept. What people usually mean by the stereotype is almost, in a sense, a more mythological, less than perfect, more personal deity in the Bible compared to what you have in philosophy and the in classical theism, where you have perfect being, theology, and ideas of maximal greatness, where you have all these Latin concepts for God who is supposed to be the one omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, and omnibenevolent, and all those things, which you cannot always fish out in the narratives, in biblical narratives. But, so, whereas there's this popular dichotomy between the Bible and philosophy, and between even Greek thought, this view has, in recent times, since the 1990s, especially in biblical studies, started to collapse, with the collapse of the historical paradigm, and There's at the present no, still no philosophical approach to ancient Israelite religion or no philosophy of religion where the religion in question is not Judaism or Christianity, but ancient Javism studied for its own sake, aside from my work. But what makes it necessary, and this is very important, is that people don't realize that in the scientific study of religion, you have not only linguistic and historical and sociological and anthropological and psychological perspective on the religion, but also a philosophical perspective. Unless we approach ancient Israelite religion from a philosophical perspective we have no approach or no means of gaining access to the most basic assumptions of biblical worldviews, of the metaphysical, and epistemological or other assumptions and without these elementary assumptions we can't really say that we understand anything about the Hebrew Bible because these assumptions were taken for granted in ancient Israel religion. That's why the the Biblical authors don't spell them out, because the Bible is not a textbook of philosophy. These are never spelled out, but it doesn't mean they are not there. And it doesn't mean that we can't describe them. And while philosophy is usually seen as distortive, this is not necessarily so. It simply means you are doing the job improperly, because what is distortive is not philosophical, even after Italian concepts per se. What is distortive is if you superimpose a philosophical theology, on the Old Testament, on a specific conception of the deity therein. Of course, then philosophy is distortive, but it's again simply a case of reading systematic theology into into biblical theology. Then it becomes distortive, but in the 20th century we developed philosophical approaches whether in analytic philosophy proper, or in phenomenology, or in comparative philosophy of religion, especially since the 1980s where well, you can actually use philosophy in non of ways to simply describe what is going on in non-philosophical ancient cultures. And for the most part, philosophy of religion today still means Christian philosophy of religion, and Christian philosophers of religion tend to focus mostly on the New Testament, on, on philosophical theology and concepts of Incarnation and Resurrection, which is all, always read through the concepts of systematic theology, and there is very little history of religion. And philosophers of religion tend to bracket the history of religion, and there's very little concern with ancient Israelite religion for its own sake. And by this I mean just trying to understand in philosophical terms what text meant, whether it's relevant or orthodox or not, whether the results conform to what we would like to believe in our, in our own church theology or not. And there's very little attempt to simply philosophically describe in philosophical terms what is going on in the Old Testament and Israelite religion, despite all the pluralism and contradiction, I mean, you don't have to harmonize it. The philosophy of religion does not necessarily always mean apologetics, or polemics, or natural theology, or any sort of thing like that. There is also, and I think the distinctions was made by Maxwell Charlesworth, that there are many different views on the relation between philosophy and religion. And in the 20th century since Wittgenstein, the philosopher, you have more descriptive approaches coming up that seeks to describe and to clarify and to understand. That does not seek to criticize or justify religion, but seeks to to understand what it meant and whether it's true or not. It's just interesting. Like, like for example, people studying ancient Egyptian religion. You don't have to believe in ancient Egyptian gods to find ancient Egyptian religion fascinating. And you don't have to justify the belief claims of ancient Egypt in studying it philosophically. You can just describe what is there for purely historical reasons of interest. So I just saw this gap and it partly resulted as my crisis of faith. And from 2003-2007 I was still very atheologically in the sense that I tried to use philosophy of religion to discredit the Hebrew Bible's truth claims and beliefs, because, well, that was a phase in my development, but since 2007 to the present, I've changed from being evaluative and critical and ideological critical in my philosophy of ancient Israelite religion to a more descriptive approach, where I simply use philosophical analysis in terms of presupposition clarification and conceptual analysis and philosophical translation and simply seek to clarify the hidden assumptions in the text, and something to bring out the meaning that other purely historical and sociological and other approaches cannot do, that's really critical approaches.
0: You mentioned that there has been a fair bit of philosophical discussion about theologically developed Christianity and theologically developed Judaism, but you're applying these tools now to ancient Israelite religion, which is the religion of the Israelites for most of the biblical period until what you would say the, the Babylonian exile, or where would you draw the marker?
1: Well, I would include the entire Hebrew Bible. Although in the Hebrew Bible itself, they also not such thing as ancient Israelite religion in in a singular sense. There are many competing and different viewpoints. It's, it's like speaking about Christianity. I mean, there's no such thing as Christianity in a single sense. You have Catholic and Protestant and Orthodox traditions, and even in those different divisions, you have different subsections and sub-groups and stuff. And that is basically the same with the Hebrew Bible, and, which is why people find it problematic for philosophy of religion, because of it's pluralism, and which is why contemporary analytic philosophy of religion that we will come to in, in a bit is, is really problematic because it does not take seriously the theological pluralism and the ideological diversity and change within the Hebrew Bible itself.
0: Now, a lot of people who have grown up in a Christian culture will tend to read the Bible through the Christian lens and read it as if it was written by evangelical Christians from the 20th century as opposed to being written by ancient Israelites. So, would you help clarify for us, what are some of the things that are just very different in ancient Israelite religion, as opposed to what came uh, many millennia later in Christianity?
1: There are many concepts, um, let me just speak to a primary one, which is the concept of God itself. I think philosophers of religion talk about God in in a most general and abstract way, but people sometimes forget that what people in from a Christian or Jewish background, or in in Western culture, call God, actually used to be a very specific tribal deity of Palestine and the uh, Arabian Peninsula. This, this was a tribal deity, so it's, it's it's obviously very very easy to talk about God in a universal sense, but If you look at the history of the concept of God, it it changes everything. And and this is why I say that sometimes, especially in analytic philosophy of religion and less in the continental traditions, but even there, the the philosophy of religion sometimes conveniently forgets the history of religion. Because people today have a very specific idea about what it means to be a God. What they will say is that people debate God and you would say that, well, maybe God does not know the future. Then some people would immediately object and say, well, then it's not God, which actually betrays their assumptions that people today are very spoiled in a theological sense. They simply take for granted classical theism's perfect being theology, by which is meant that God is absolutely everything in terms of power and knowledge and presence and love and everything. The concept of God today is very user-friendly and is, people try to make it as perfect as possible and they they would think that anything less than that is not worshipful because most people today would find it impossible to worship a God who is responsible for evil. Well, in the ancient world, people were very less finicky or fussy about what makes a God a God. In the ancient world, what made a God was, in a sense, power. But the concept and the Hebrew Bible's concept of what in Hebrew would be called El or Elohim or Eloah in the generic sense of the word, not in the sense of Yahweh, but as, I mean, Yahweh is called a God. Now, in the Hebrew Bible, which is in the culture background of polytheism, when you call something a God, it's like assigning it to a species. Now, Yahweh behaves like a typical Iron Age God, and with all apologies to Plantinga, Yahweh is, in a sense, a slave to his nature. He behaves like a typical God, and what people expected of gods in those times to be. And... When you look at um, the God of ancient Israel in the sense of Yahweh, aside from the fact that many of his attributes or properties are different in different narratives in the Hebrew Bible, like for example in Genesis 18 where he goes to Abraham and he, he has to go to the city of Sodom and Gomorrah to check out or to verify a report, And, I mean, simply traveling to the city presupposes he's not omnipresent, because if you're omnipresent, you you can't really move. You don't have to move, and if you have to verify a report, you're not omniscient, and if you're neither, you cannot be omnipotent, and if you look at Abraham arguing Yahweh out of destroying the cities, you can, you see that, for, for, for that narrative at least, that God is not what determines morality. That morality is, well, distinct from the deity. And, in a sense, when you look at the Hebrew Bible, I, I suppose that the greatest difference is that people have for so long heard sermons about the Bible and read books about the Bible that they can no longer see what is actually in the Bible. So because when they read in translation and they, 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 they read this concept, God, or they, or they see the Lord in translation, well, well, or they read all these associations, every time they read the Word they read into it perfectly in theology. And whereas if you look at pay attention to the details of the narratives in which the character of Yahweh appears in the Hebrew Bible, you find that the deity does not really conform to the expectations people have of God these days. Um and that he's is not an all perfect God. And the fact is that in the ancient world people a god did not have to be perfect to be a god and that that Yahweh is quite a specific God and a specific kind of God. So I suppose the assumptions about what makes a God a God is perhaps most different, and this is where the history of religion and philosophy of religion, or conversely, um, biblical theology and philosophical theology most clash, and that is why the Bible is problematic, not only because the Hebrew Bible presents many different and conflicting views about God, but also because it is simply not what people would like to think a God to be. Well, as people like Albert Schweitzer and Nietzsche said that, well, the best argument for atheism is not really so much any arguments originally used in philosophy of religion or atheistic atheistic philosophy of religion, but actually simply the history of religion. I mean, the best argument against the truth of any dogma is simply its own history. If if you look at it, the magic is gone, you see all two human origins, you see the changes, you see how people made it up as they go along, and how each generation projects their own view onto the whole of history and then pretends this is the biblical view of God and this is just true, whereas any person at the forefront of research in biblical scholarship who is not a fundamentalist will know that there is no such thing as the biblical view on anything, whether it's God or Jesus or ethics or what happens after death or creation or whatever. I mean, the Hebrew Bible or the Bible itself is actually a problem for Christianity and and that it does not support what the church teaches and is actually a, a much more fascinating and alien piece of literature. And the church, in a sense, and apologists, in a sense, have to domesticate it and pretend, or be willfully ignorant that that the Bible, that they are not as biblical as they think. That there is not you can't be biblical because there is not such thing as a as any one view in the Bible about anything. So the whole concept of being biblical is just like a political term, but it's actually meaningless.
0: Well, I think that's what's so bizarre to me about certain Christian apologists, like William Lane Craig, who have this philosophical God that they argue for, but then they'll, they're also some variety of biblical inerrantist, And the two are just totally in conflict. I mean, if, if your God is the God of the Bible, then he's not at all the God uh, that you're arguing for in philosophy, this perfect being type of God. It's just very confusing, because they're totally different types of gods.
1: Let's not make a mistake, because there there is this movement in Christianity called open theism, or, well, in more philosophical version, process theism, which just goes to the other extreme of this perfect being theology. And they they looked at the Bible, and they would see the the more fallible deity, and they would focus on those texts. But the thing is that there are more orthodox texts in the Bible, which conforms more to orthodoxy. And especially in the later texts, in Isaiah and other texts, there are some texts which you can interpret to conform to some extent the more perfect being theology, but in most of the texts it does not conform. Now, many philosophers of religion, because they are the philosophers proper, and, and they don't have really background in biblical studies, what they know of biblical studies is that they learn from straw men and caricatures in apologetic literature, Uh, They have this view of historical criticism and of what goes on in biblical scholarship, and it's all subsumed under this label of liberal. And they believe that biblical criticism is about naturalistic assumptions where you beforehand deny that the supernatural exists, where you deny that predictive prophecy is possible, where you deny miracles beforehand, and so you just read the Hebrew Bible as just another piece of literature. But what these people forget is that these were not always assumptions, and that conservative people used to study the Bible out of respect for it. And what they found is a lot of things in the Bible, and from the Bible itself, they found more than one version of any supposedly historical event, and they realized that the conception of history itself, that people in the ancient world never just related stories about the past for the sake of telling stories about the past, that even our conception of, of history is different than what it was, but they, they realized that people back then saw reality in a, in a, a bit of a different sense, so that whereas the, the, the initial critical scholarship had no assumptions or anti-supernaturalist assumptions, they simply worked from the data, and these later became taken for granted conclusions in the research. So what the problem is is that most apologists or philosophers of religion who debunk our critical biblical scholarship have this view of it and they usually trace it through the Enlightenment and the Enlightenment is everything that's bad and you have Spinoza and you have in the New Testament you have Strauss and all these others and modern, the modern Jesus seminar and the historical Jesus research and stuff. And these people, the, the philosophers of religion and many others also conservative biblical scholars, they just dismiss the findings of the critical scholarship because they just see unorthodox findings and they are so, well, shocked or angered by it that they just don't want anything to do with it. Much of philosophy of religion never did take notice of the last 200 years of Biblical scholarship and the main problems in Biblical theology, I mean, theological pluralism, the relation with history, parallels with the ancient Near East, and other things, the the findings of archaeology, this has not been incorporated into philosophy of religion. So really, in a sense, that the critique from the continental side of philosophy of religion, that much of analytic philosophy of religion is just like fiddling while while Rome burns,
0: is in a sense true,
1: that these people must bracket the history of religion things to look
0: so easy. Well, getting back to your work in general in merging philosophy of religion and biblical studies, you've written some on the application of the problem of evil from philosophy of religion to the biblical character of Yahweh, the God of the ancient Israelites. Could you tell us what is the problem of evil and what are some common philosophical responses to it and then what happens to the problem of evil if we stop talking about the god of perfect being theology and we start talking about the god of the bible
1: let me first say in a sense the problem of evil as it is known does not exist in the same sense in the hebrew bible or the old testament the problem of evil arises as a problem when you assume a certain type or suit when you assume a certain view of god um in the stereotypical sense. The problem of evil can be stated as a form of three premises, or two, in, well, a couple of, and, and a conclusion, where you have that God is omnipotent and that God is good, and then the seemingly incongruent premise that there's evil in the world. And the thing is, the problem of evil is a complex problem. And in, in the history of philosophy, or Christian philosophy, you have different responses. People like Augustine and others would appeal to the fall. Um, and to sin in the world and to free will. I think the most popular attempt to solve it is by appealing to free will and the fact that evil is a necessary condition given free will of free agents. Mm-hmm. The problem with this is in the evil the Bible the concept of free will is not really that important. Um, I mean Yahweh has no trouble overriding the free will of individual agents, of hardening people's hearts. So God of the Bible in many narratives does not have as much respect for free will as modern people have. So the free world defense is not really even a biblical defense, even though that's what people think is the most obvious defense or the most satisfactory solution that many people who consider themselves biblical would put forward. Um, other than that, there's many other attempts like people believing that evil is um, illusionary, as in Christian science to some extent, or in, in some Eastern religions, and by saying illusionary, there's different meanings to this. It's not necessarily that they deny evil. Uh, There's also the belief that evil is part of what is called soul-making, or that that one develops or grows spiritually through evil or facing evil, that somehow the world and human beings need evil to arrive at a certain state. And there are also other theodicies or other attempts to explain evil. And in the end, you can always argue on a pure philosophical level which one of these are best, but as long as you talk about God and evil, and you think you are speaking of a specific God, not just the concept of God in the abstract with no connection to any religious tradition is basically meaningless because the concept of God only arose from religious traditions. And as soon as you are a Christian philosopher of religion, you can't just put away the Bible and the history of the religion of your own God and you have to remember that your what you call God and what you call evil as a history. And in the Hebrew Bible, what is called evil not only have many different variations and forms, but they are very different at times from what modern philosophers of religion take for granted as what evil is and what God is supposed to be like. So if you put place the the problem of evil as God is omnipotent, God is all good, and evil exists, then there is no problem of evil in the Hebrew Bible or in many texts thereof, because in many texts Yahweh is simply not depicted as being either all good or omnipotent and even the concept of evil is not in evil in the same sense.
0: Well, your discussion of evil leads right into my question about how you've integrated philosophy with biblical studies in reflecting on the meta-ethical foundations of ancient Israelite morality. The usual assumption is that the Israelites held to an early form of divine command theory such that things were right and wrong in virtue of their being commanded or forbidden by Yahweh, a subjective kind of moral theory. But you argue that instead the Old Testament espouses a kind of objective moral realism. Can you flesh out for us a bit what what I just said and then explain why you think the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible displays objective moral realism rather than subjectivist divine command theory?
1: The focus on ethics in the Hebrew Bible in biblical studies tend to be concerned with normative ethics and things like the commandments and the laws and the prescriptions and basic morality. Whereas in biblical studies the the subdiscipline in ethics called meta ethics or analytical ethics doesn't really come to the fore, which is part of the anti philosophical sentiment in biblical studies. That many biblical scholars would discuss what things the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, calls good and evil. But they will never ask, but what does the Old Testament mean when it calls something good or evil? What does it assume about the origins of these concepts? Uh, and how does one know good and evil? This comes to the fore in some discussions, but never really on a philosophical, meta-ethical level in the sense of historical and descriptive philosophy. Whereas in philosophy of religion, when you when they discuss religion and morality, this this issue of interest, and you have things like the Yusufo dilemma or divine command ethics or anything in the relationship between religion and morality, you basically have a historical introduction where there are some bits and pieces of the Old Testament where they would, for example, refer to Abraham sacrificing Isaac or Yahweh giving the commandments or whatever, and then that would be put forward as the idea that, in general, the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament presupposes divine command ethics, in the sense that you just described that what is right is such because Yahweh sees it as such. So, of course, the Yusufo dilemma which says that if what a God sees as evil determines what is evil, it makes evil relative to whatever the God sees it. So a God can, in theory, um, say anything is good, whether it whatever we think of it. So, in a sense, divine command ethics has the problem of either Making
0: well morality
1: relative, or in in the other sense that if if you look at the dilemma itself in the philosophical form that which was stated in the beginning as does God command something because it's good or is something good because God commands it, mm-hmm. you either sit with relative ethics or something where morality is independent of God. Now this tension is found in the Hebrew Bible itself and. I would not deny that there are traces of divine command meta-ethical assumptions in the text. But what I would like to point out is that the basic assumption, also in biblical theology, that divine command is the the default view in the Hebrew Bible, is not, to my estimate, the whole picture, because I find that there are several, well, there are traces in the meta-ethical assumptions in the Hebrew Bible where you find motives and assumptions or presuppositions which implies that this was not the case, that moral realism was also at least, or even if not more, important or central in the meta-ethical assumptions in ancient Israelite religion. And I will tell you what I mean by this. It's basically, when the Hebrew Bible talks about Yahweh and about morality, it does not always presuppose that something is good because Yahweh commands it, and for the following reasons. If you look at the fact that when sometimes the commandments of Yahweh are called good, sometimes reason are given. Reasons are given and it says that they are good because they promote life or they do this or they do that. They are never assumed to be good by definition, which mm-hmm. immediately implies that, yes, there is the motive of what is right is what's right in Yahweh's eyes and what finds his favor. But the question is, that should be asked is, but why is it right in his eyes and why did it find favor? And what, once you see that, When the reasons in the Hebrew Bible are given for why the commandments are good, you see that they are good for for a reason. And the very fact that this can be the case, because if the the commands were good by default, because they were commanded by Yahweh, there was no need to call them good anyway, because they would be good, but they didn't have to call them. It's like calling water wet. You don't call water wet, it just is wet. So, the same with calling Yahweh good, Um, I mean, when the psalmist or whoever calls Yahweh good and spells out the reasons why it's called good, or when... Many of the texts call Yahweh a God who is merciful in this, and implies that other kinds of deities are possible and that in the Hebrew Bible, and that cultural context, you have good gods and bad gods and good commands and bad commands. Then it implies that there are certain modalities and differences, But the, the fact that Yahweh is not only God, but a certain kind of God, implies alternative possibilities of being God. And so all the attributes of Yahweh and the fact that he's called good, the fact that this is not meaningless because if, if the God was seen to be good by definition, you don't have to call him good and you don't have to praise him for being good, mm-hmm. then follows that goodness is something distinct from God and the fact that Yahweh's character conforms to what goodness is seen is why he's called good. And now the question may be asked, but why are goodness determined by what Yahweh commands? Well, if we ask that, we just have to To ask another question, which is, but why does Yahweh command certain things? And once one makes the distinction between the fact that Yahweh was assumed to be a good God, which in the Hebrew Bible's conception of God does not assume that when a God is good, it cannot also cause evil. Their conception was much more holistic, I mean, like a human being. A human being is not only good, all human beings have the potential to do evil, and it's this, this. Is not seen as a contradiction. Now, in the Hebrew Bible, the fact that Yahweh could cause evil was not seen as a contradiction in his profile. The fact that Yahweh can, in Ezekiel 20, the prophet, um, or Yahweh himself, is depicted as saying that he gave bad commands. I mean, if divine commands are good by default, how can a deity prescribe something which he acknowledges is bad? But the very fact that Moses, or, or many of the prophets, like Amos and Jeremiah, sometimes talk Yahweh out of doing something by appealing to goodness and even the fact that some of the psalmists can sometimes appeal to the moral order against some of the actions of Yahweh, or almost take Yahweh to court and and argue with Yahweh about stuff. Divine command theory was presupposed that goodness was an essential property either of divine commands or of the deity, then this this is not by definition not possible and you see it when in Psalms like Psalms fifty eight or eighty two, Gods can be well and idols and, and gods of other nations can be seen or depicted or charged for doing bad commands or not or doing bad things. And you realise that the property of goodness was not something that seemed to be essential either to divine commands or to the divine being and that the reason why people could look to divine commands for their morality in the Hebrew Bible was not because this divine commands created what was good or evil or determined this. But because on an epistemological level or on a level of knowledge, people assumed back then that human beings needed a God to tell them what is good. So the fact that Yahweh was a good God is what makes his commandments good. Not because they were commanded by a God, but because he was seen as a good type of God. And because humans did not know in themselves knowledge of good and evil, and the deity revealed this, this is why people looked at the commands. Because the command mediated knowledge of what is good, because Yahweh was a good God who would tell people what the moral order expected of them. But this was still seen as distinct from Yahweh, which is why all the predicate of goodness could be seen as distinct from the deity. So, in a sense, the, the way the Hebrew Bible talks about good and evil, and the way, the reason it calls the commandments good, was not because the commandments so much determined goodness, but because the commandments were good because Yahweh was seen as a good God, and as a good God, he would reveal to people what goodness expects. And this is also seen in the, the fact that something like wisdom was seen as could be personified as an entity apart from Yahweh, even if it was also an attribute. So if, if you do a conceptual analysis of goodness in the Hebrew Bible, or whether it's reference to the commands, you would soon see that the moral order presupposed in some texts is something distinct from the deity. And also the deity has to call something good, not because he thinks it's good, but because this was assumed to be moral realism, and in the end, the, something like the Euthyphro dilemma becomes actually a false dilemma, because it wasn't, and for the ancient Israelites, it was not a case Either what was good was seen such because Yahweh commanded it or Yahweh commanded something because it was good. But Yahweh commanded something as good because he was a good God and there was assumed to be something like a moral order. But because as monotheism developed, evil was not seen as something opposed to the good. And also because the concept of good changed throughout the history of Islamic religion and even what people philosophers, and philosophers of religion today would understand and the good today is different.
0: Well, at this point, I continued to interview Yako for about another 30 to 40 minutes, but unbeknownst to me, none of that was being recorded by my software. So I'm not sure why it stopped there, but I do look forward to having yako back on the show so that we can continue just to discuss a lot of his work but i think at 50 minutes this is a lot of great content and so i'll just end the interview here it was great speaking with yako and i really look forward to speaking to him again